Stay tuned for the WPKN's Organic Farm Stand coming up in just a moment. Welcome to WPCAN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month. We are in July. It is July 1st. And so smack dab at the beginning of the month, here we are. Guy Beardsley is on the phone and a special treat today. Janelle Beardsley is going to join him, at least for a part of the show. Uh, later in the show, we are also going to have Vincent Kay, who joins us on the first Thursday of each month to give his Honeybee Report and all the amazing adventures he has frolicking in the fields, dodging electric fences and black bears. And uh, so that'll be coming up at about uh, 12.25-ish. And uh, in the meantime, it's just you and us here. Um, We would like to encourage you to take advantage of Guy Beardsley's knowledge and Janelle Beardsley's as well by calling 203-336-9756. And uh, because summer is here and we're all relaxed and enjoying this uh, kind of reopening to some degree of our country, um, we are opening the phones for the whole show. So make use of that, because if you're having any issues in the garden, want advice on uh, beginning planting or nurturing already planted vegetables or flowers and, uh, and, and all kinds of other things, like whether it's too late to start shrub, uh, fruit shrubs and trees and other things like that, um, give us a call, 203-336-9756. Guy Beardsley, I'm talking so much I didn't even get you. Well, you do great work, though, obviously, <laughs> Richard, and I appreciate that. But if, you, if I'm on, uh, we'll, we'll have at it here. Now, 
Uh, you, you certainly you probably are. have uh, known that uh, we've had a little heat lately, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> w- wanted to mention that. Uh, so. <laughs> That's right. My goodness gracious. And uh, the flowers, uh, I don't know how Jill's flowers have survived, but uh, uh, most of the time when the, with our latitude, when the temperature gets over 90, uh, we don't get much growing. Uh, we have much of the plants go into a, including some of the weeds, uh, go into a survival mode. And the leaves curl up and the, the flowers uh, are not there. But uh, Janelle has done such a great job with her garden that it looks just beautiful. Every conceivable sort of color is, uh, is right out there. Uh, and I, I thought it would be interesting. Uh, Janelle's got some other things to do to to put her on first because uh, she has some discussions. She's been working really hard with the uh, blueberries, and uh, they they actually they're ready to to start being picked now. But uh, of course, the birds are very aware of that, and uh, they have at it. Go ahead, Jill. Yes, thank you, Guy and Richard. Uh, good afternoon. It's great to visit the. Organic Farm Stand radio show. Um, I uh, spent time on blueberries and fought the robins. The robin is a state bird of Connecticut. You probably know that. And uh, the reason is they love to eat all of our blueberries, and each robin picked out its own bush to attack. And, yeah, the blueberries are ripening this week just as the lavender is, uh, English lavender, is needing to be harvested so I I won't be able to stay on the whole show. But um, just to say, I mention a very common problem that farmers and gardeners often encounter, and that is quackgrass. And it's a true weed in every sense of the word. It, It grows quickly. It grows where you don't want it to. It takes over. It keeps out the plants that you're trying to grow. And um, I I did something that I haven't done in years, and I actually got out the rototiller. After cutting the grass, uh, the quack grass off in this one part of the garden that was overrun with it, I then actually rototilled. And I, sorry to say that, I haven't rototilled or upset the soil structure like that in years and years, trying to follow the no-till agriculture and gardening that we do. But... The heat that Guy has mentioned uh, was very useful to help me to eliminate this patch of quackgrass because it it killed many of the uh, roots. And another name for this plant is also called white root, and it's Elymus repens, E-L-Y-M-U-S repens. I looked up the Latin name of it. But you, you have to admire the tenacity tenacity of this plant because it grows about four to eight inches under the ground, this very thick, tough white root, and about every six inches there is a node, and that is where the new leaf blades of this grass sprout out, and it really does take over, and it can pop up anywhere and just tunnel under the ground and appear overnight almost. I think because of the heat, I was able to knock it out by leaving the the white root exposed on the surface. And I I couldn't have planned the heat wave that we had, but it really worked in my favor following my rototilling that I did. So I um, 
I hope that I've taken care of the problem, just trying to get control of a, a section of the garden that got a little out of control. Because at any one time, a, a farmer or a gardener this time of year, there's about four or five things that you need to be doing at one time to uh, execute all the tasks on a, a farm that has fruit and vegetables and flowers and herbs. So this is just a little thumbnail sketch of some of the struggles here. Hmm. And um, happy 4th of July. <laughs> yeah, it's coming right up. Rich, uh, Jill, can you uh, bounce by the uh, travel, uh, the work that you did on the blueberry bushes? Oh, yeah. I, I want to squeeze in a question there because, as you know, that's one of my favorite subjects. So I just want to mention that we have four large medium to large bushes. They all uh, really burst forth with, with a tremendous amount of, of uh, green berries. Some, in, in some cases, one bush has berries that are smaller than I would like, but in the last, we were away for three days, we came back and the blueberry bushes are now, I would say, a quarter, 20, about 25% blue, the, the berries are blue. I wanted to ask you to compare that to your situation there. Uh, we're a little bit behind you. Um, our, we've got about a quarter now that are rapidly ripening up, turning blue. And I was alerted to that fact by the robins hopping <laughs> around and diving in and out. But I think you possibly are a little bit more toward the shoreline. So yeah. I'm slightly behind you. Hmm. A little and south the too. Of blueing yeah. up. Yeah. Oh, oh that's a, that's interesting. <clears throat> yeah. And then one other thing, just on a personal note, we um, we have one currant bush, which uh, in the past we have, I'm going to say, never really gotten to the point where those berries have sweetened up uh, to their peak uh, level of um, delectability and uh, be before the birds got to them. So we always had to, uh, you know, just go out there and grab a few and eat them and enjoy them as quickly as we could. They weren't even quite ripe. This year, uh, Leslie went out and she, she created these little pens or, you know, bird, bird net pens over the, the currant bush and three of the blueberry bushes. And uh, I'll tell you something. What was it? I can't remember. Four days ago, we decided, okay, it's time to harvest the currants. So we took the structure down, and we just stayed out there for an hour and picked up as many as we could. We got about um, maybe four or five cups of them. And, wow. Uh, yeah, pretty good job. And, and, and we took them in, cleaned them up, and, and immediately made a compote of them. And so, and that is one delicious uh, thing to put on ice cream or, mm. or other fruit. And uh, it's, it really worked out. Uh, maybe later, if there's time, I'll, I'll tell you the recipe we used. How, how is the flavor, Richard? It's, as you would expect, I mean, it's like... We used a whole lot less sugar than recommended, so the, the dominant flavor is the currant, which is, I don't know how to describe it, it's a slightly 
darkish, um, sweet but dark and tart, and uh, it's, it's got its own special thing. I think the closest thing you could come to it would be maybe cranberry juice, which is has a lot of you know has been added some sugar to it. So it's got that kind of it's in that sort of strange zone. You know, it's um, a unique flavor. You know, uh, R- Richard. Thank, um, uh, I didn't mention, by the way, Chris walked yeah. in as we were moving. Chris, good Hi, to see you. Hey, how's it going? Guy, I thought we'd see you in person. Well, uh, yeah, but uh, there's uh, events have happened. Uh, I've got uh, relatives that are en route, and they're going to arrive here probably within the hour. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, I obviously can't afford to uh, depart. Janelle yeah. is here working on the house, and, of course, we've got her on the phone right now. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, so um, so Richard, you're talking about currants. Um, I've never had a fresh currant, but I've I've only seen them in dried form. Yeah, okay. Like kind of like they're they do look like little tiny raisins. Yes, those are actually, I've as I understand it, those are actual the ones we see in the health food store, and I buy a lot of them because they do have organic varieties for sale at various health food stores. My understanding is those are called Zante raisins. They're hmm. not actually currants. And okay. but I know there are black currants and red currants, so they could be black currants, but they don't um they don't have any of, of the flavor that I've been trying to Yeah. D- describe. Um Richard, will they ripen up on the counter if you pick them slightly unripe? Are they one of those fruits that you Find can ripen up on their own once harvested. That's a good question, and I can't answer it because we, um, as I said, this year we waited until mm-hmm. until they were quite edible, you know, right from the vine, and then we did the compote thing, which uh, took about literally less than half an hour, and uh, that sweetened them up even more. But no, I don't know if they if they do ripen. Maybe if you. <clears throat> you know, clipped off a branch of them and hung them, hung them upside down or something like that. They would uh, continue to ripen. Blueberries will ripen on the counter after harvest, and that's how I defeat the robins. I pick the berries slightly before the robins get to them because we took down all of our bird netting a few years ago. We just decided the bird netting is not worth all the trouble of it. We're just going to harvest at a different time other than bird harvesting time yeah that's <clears throat> that's that's really a, a revelation i'm gonna have to keep, <laughs> yeah. so keep so that. janelle do you you pick them while they're still like a little bit green is that what you do yep exactly right when there's a like near the stem there's often a little green and white patch and that's when i get them or early in the morning before the robins start <laughs> their attack mm-hmm and so, and so then you just pile them in a bowl and let them yep, do their thing? Yeah, in a single layer out on the counter, and they will ripen up. Well, inevitably, the bird netting did not keep out the birds. Birds always got in underneath. I don't know how they did it. We had hmm. staked it down. Hmm. but it was, And then it was so much trouble to get the poor bird out that was imprisoned in the netting. We, and we have only 30 bushes, so we decided, well, we'll we won't do this anymore. That is, uh, yeah, that's the hazard. And, and to, I got to say that today, <clears throat> as I was leaving uh, Branford, um, 
there was a whole lot of, a lot more birds in the yard, and they were, you know, centering their attention on those bushes. So <laughs> I hope I get mm-hmm. home in time to uh, catch the uh, catch them in the act. Um, but anyway, that's uh, that's great stuff. Um, Janelle, what else do you do with the bluebirds? Is is it just harvesting at this point? Yeah, we um, harvest and we'll be making jam uh, later, but we also um, dehydrate them. We have a dehydrator, and that uh, proves amazing for storage of the blueberries over winter in the refrigerator. They can be rehydrated easily. I don't know the nutritional survivability under those circumstances, but it's it's a quick process. And we can still use them in baking scones and so forth. And so we use them in baking also. Richard, I'm changing the subject here. That uh, Janelle found a snakeskin in the uh, in the uh, in her garden here, which was a pretty good size one. And uh, the question was, what kind of a snake was it? And uh, I looked it over, and I'm pretty sure it was a black snake or a blue racer, such as people call them, uh, and which is a really great snake to have around because generally with them around, you won't find any uh, copperheads, or, or and, and they do uh, live pretty well with the garter snakes, too. But uh, anyway, uh, you might find a snakeskin in the garden because this is the time of year in which they grow, and obviously, and they have to shed one skin in order to uh, get their other skin going and uh, get you know and grow. So interesting that the snakeskins do come up and and are around and. Uh, uh, our little Chihuahua dogs started to gra- <laughs> started to grab them and uh, tear it apart. But a snakeskin is interesting if you can keep it intact, to uh, because it uh, makes it it's very, it's very decorative. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it was a two inches wide, and it, I don't know how long it was. It was in pieces, but that it was quite a large snake actually and i thought well this will keep the rabbits away of in case there might have been that was the overgrown section of the garden that had the white root in it that needed to be uh, reformed uh-huh. yes so that was a discovery i made so anyway uh, what uh I thought that, uh, Janelle, is there anything else that uh, you can think of? Uh, how about getting, giving everybody an encapsulated idea of how you prepare those blueberry bushes? Because they all look really great now, and it took a lot of work to get them to where they, where they are right now. You know, they, as last year in 2020, I uh, very methodically removed all the roots, including the, the roots of weeds, like white root, from around each bush and replaced it with four inches of of bark mulch or shredded bark mulch after putting down, in some cases I had to put down six layers of newspaper uh, in more weedy bushes and that helped a little bit with suppressing the weeds. But we also used the blueberry booster, just very delicately scratched into the soil around each bush, about a cup per bush and that has quite a few ingredients that um, are known to be beneficial to blueberries, such as green sand and a lot of other ingredients. And then I, I, 
I made sure that I made the ring around each bush about two feet out around the bush. So that was a lot of mulch. But I think it's important to stop the competition of other plants with the nutrition of the blueberries. Anyway, the plants look really good. And uh, uh, we got a couple that, uh, for some reason or another, don't look uh, like they're as healthy as they should but uh, we have no idea right now why that would be. Uh, we're just keeping an eye on them. But uh, of the 30 or so that we've got, uh, most of them are looking real good. And there's early, there's early ones, there's mid-season, and there's late blueberries. So we have a fairly decent uh, exposure to uh, maybe a month and a half of blueberries. Yeah. That's, that's really great. <coughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing to me how many different varieties of blueberries there are. Uh, and uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I go to the Cape a lot in the summer, and I see uh, on a good year when you go out to the, the fields and uh, or, the, or what, should, what should we really call them, the kind of um, highland areas where the, uh, there, there are really are no tall trees. It's just shrubs. And some high bush berries, but mostly. Good. Are you there, Richard? Yeah, can you hear me? I, I, I can hear you right now, yeah. Okay. It's kind of fading away there for a bit. Oh, uh, crank myself up a little bit. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah, so, um, you know, and, and so in those uh, highland areas, which, as I said, basically have no tall trees, they just have some high bush berries, but also mainly ground berries, but right next to each other. You will see berries of different uh, colors, ripe berries of different colors, and distinct flavors. Uh, and it just amazes me how many different ones there are. Some of them have almost like a cinnamon-like flavor to them, and others, you know, uh, just a just a, a range of sweet flavors that uh, is uh, miraculous to me. It is really amazing. We have a couple of varieties that have very tiny little blueberries on them that end up ripening later um, after the larger size berries. So it, ours are all planted six feet apart. But interestingly, in my commute, I drive by a farm that put in a, about 200 berries. And I was really shocked to see that they planted them two and a half feet apart. And I thought, wow. I, they must have something in mind here. And, in fact, one can create a blueberry hedge if you plant berry, the blueberry bushes that close together. I'm not sure how easy that is for picking, but we can get all the way around ours easily enough with six foot apart. That's traditional uh, six. I know Joneses are very much uh, six feet because you've got to give the blueberry bush, particularly the high bushes, an opportunity to breathe, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't want them to run into one another, which they certainly will do at uh, three feet apart. Absolutely right. Yeah. Well, well that... anyway, Jill, uh, thank you so much. Thank you. For... Yeah, thanks, Janelle. Yeah, thank you, Chris, and good afternoon. Great to visit the organic farm stand. Thank you. <laughs> sure, thank you. Well, you you're oh, great. You're always great. That's no doubt about it. Always our great. pleasure. Always our uh, pleasure. Now, I've got to tell you, uh, has anybody uh, called in yet? Uh, because uh, we've had some really hot, dry weather, uh, and uh, although 
I did not have but just about a tenth of an inch of rain last night. Supposedly, we're going to get some more rain today, which is good. Uh, it's interesting to point that my, I am growing corn this year. I'm not growing a whole lot of it, but uh, and I'm keeping it right down here in, in the vicinity of the house as opposed to up there, which is much more accessible for the deer. But uh, that, nevertheless, uh, the corn... Can, uh, can function under some really dry conditions because the corn will absorb and pick up the dew in the morning and it will just uh, funnel uh, because of the shape of the leaf. It will pick up the dew and it will funnel it right down into the stalk and uh, it will help uh, to keep the, the corn moisture. Yeah, that, uh, and that's really good. And we're also very fortunate in that the fact that the highest point on our farm lot that's by the house here is a spring-fed pond. So the soil is a lot moist, more moist under the top of it than it is in many other places uh, on the farm, for sure. Uh, and so anyway, heat, uh, you know, when we're talking about the uh, the heat situation, uh it, the potatoes seem to handle the heat pretty well, and uh, the, the, the tomatoes uh, also, as long as there is a little moisture in the ground, doesn't have to be wet at all, just a little moisture, and uh, that'll, that'll keep things going well. Uh, I think the tendency is when it gets really hot like that, people will definitely overwater, and uh, that's not necessarily uh, a very good thing. Uh, and so we recommend that people keep just the uh, moist soil, uh, not wet, but just moist. And uh, that, uh, that's what will normally uh, allow most roots uh, and, and all the vegetables yeah, wanna, um, and flowers to take in all the, the necessary uh, nutrients they need. So are we about ready for yeah. Vincent? <laughs> let, me, let me just check in with him. Vincent, um, we're almost ready for you. Uh, All right. But remember, you're on the same uh, volume control button as Guy, <laughs> so <laughs> please uh, refrain from idle chatter <laughs> until we introduce you. Okay, okay so that's great. Uh, Vincent K. is standing by. Guy, so in general, um, how much of a setback in terms of maturing and eventually harvesting your uh your crops for your your own private fines farm stand up there in the White well House. we know we've got the the, the varieties of uh, things which we we and uh we just have a few uh, cucumbers uh we've sold a tremendous number of cucumber plants this year and uh and we've got, uh, we sold quite a few broccoli plants, too. And I, I was a little surprised at that because most people have a lot of trouble with the broccoli because of the uh, the bugs that uh, eat the broccoli leaves and get up in the broccoli heads and, and so forth. And then there are those little green worms which come from their uh, diamondback moth mothers and fathers <laughs> and so forth. So uh, we've, the... Uh, the only thing we're really harvesting right now is uh, we finished with the strawberries, and they did very well this year. Uh, we got raspberries, uh, both the black and the red uh, raspberries uh, coming on right now. And with this heat last two or three days, we've got a lot of them. 
And uh, but you know, it's very important that uh, you apply uh, some degree of fertilizer on these raspberries in order for them to be sweet. And I noticed that was also the strawberries. Uh, we when the uh, plants first start to grow uh, in the in the spring. We, we put some fertilizer on them, which is uh, not a whole lot of, of, of uh, nitrogen, but a uh, good uh, amount of calcium, phosphorus, potassium. And uh, we don't have to fool around in our area with magnesium because the soil has generally got a whole lot of it with us. But uh, the, the, uh, the phosphorus and potassium, very important to get the, uh, the sweetness up into the uh, berries. And... Uh, if you don't put uh, that in at the right time, then uh, you won't get the, you'll get a, a, a pretty good tasting berry, but it won't be terribly sweet. And uh, most people like to they consider sweet to be taste, and uh, we don't necessarily. We like to have a good flavor with the sweetness. So anyway, I thought I would just bring that up. It's very important to to have the proper and it's the the right fertilizer too, and not uh, not a whole lot of nitrogen in it, uh, because you don't want a big plant. You want the the, the good berry, and uh, and this this year has been really good about uh, all at least for the our peaches, which are coming along nicely too. But they needed uh, to be thinned out, and as my brother said, he had to thin out all all his apple and peach trees uh, and they have some 8,000 <laughs> apple trees and 300 peach trees but uh, there was a tremendous amount of work that uh, last year we didn't have to thin them out they thinned themselves out there is a june drop on most of the uh, the trees like that and uh, they will drop off and, uh, and get rid of uh, a whole bunch of the small ones that won't amount to anything but you still need to this year we still needed to go in and prune out um, prune them prune them out again well you want no more than about three four maybe even five uh, peaches and branch that is uh, one of the smaller branches yeah hmm. okay good news about the peaches um d just tell us Going back to the raspberries, what's the optimum time to fertilize them, as you said? Uh, when they first start growing, uh, you know, if you trim them out uh, last in the fall and, uh, you know, get rid of the, the ones that uh, are, have already given you raspberries and, uh, and allow, the, uh, allow there to be space between the, the, the little individual bo uh, uh, bushes, then... Uh, then uh, in the springtime, when they first start growing, is when you want to give them a little, a little fertilizer, right? Okay, good enough. Yeah, so it's, this is a little late to do that. All right. Well, Guy, thank you very much. That was a very dynamic report. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Guy. I love it. Right. I think we are having a banner bumper crop of berries across the board this year, if my uh, little efforts are any indication and from what you're saying, Guy. I, I'm not sure why that is, but it definitely doesn't happen every year, and uh, so something's going on that's uh, making that happen. So uh, I know we're, we're going to uh, the B-Man, but I, I did want to say, Guy, um, so because we're not going to be on for a few more weeks, um, garlic harvesting. Uh, so what's the secret for garlic harvesting? Like, what is it, the, the bottom three well, or four leaves brown? 
to get at least two to three of the bottom leaves uh, that have died uh, or, you know, dried up. Right, yeah. And uh, from the, taking it from that point, then uh, you need to pull uh, garlic, which looks like it's more ready than any other, and uh, to see what it looks like. You want the bulb to be to have good definition among the cloves, and you want the top to be uh, pretty squarely into the bulb. You don't want to have a whole lot of fairing there, so that uh, and uh, that's uh, pretty much what you want to have. Uh, the size would probably be dependent upon how soon you got the scape off of it. This is in the the uh, hard neck, but beyond that. Uh, just uh, take one or two and uh, uh, the, the ones that look the ripest and uh, pull them up and have a look at them. And uh, you can, of course, you can, you obviously can't plant them again, but uh, from that point, you'll get a good idea of when, to, when you want to start pulling all of them. Uh, you want to pull them all before they start to separate, the cloves start to separate because then uh, it would be very difficult to pull them. And, that, and when you pull them, uh, you might even have to dig some of them out. Usually at this point, we don't, uh, we don't put them in very deeply when we plant them in, October, in November. So uh, we can usually pull them out uh, just by not yanking, but just a, a steady pull, and, uh, and they'll come out uh, with the bulb intact. And when it comes out, then we just uh, we, we, we put them in a, flat, a horizontal position uh, in a barn, which is out of the sun, and uh, with plenty of uh, space around them so that they can dry out, and uh, we call them mature. And uh, or, so give them a, about uh, a week to 10 days, and they'll be ready to go into whatever job you might want them. You could obviously take uh, fresh garlic and use it. It would be a little, a little um, with a lot of moisture in it, uh, more moisture than you really need to have. But it could still provide you with some excellent garlic if you wanted to. And I've still got scapes that uh, we put in the refrigerator, and those scapes can be used uh, to make great pesto. That's uh, one of the ways with, with Parmesan cheese, olive oil, and uh, you just put them in a blender, and you make a great, uh, great pesto. Thank you, Guy. Yeah, thanks, Guy. And now it's time to introduce our favorite uh, person uh, who joins us each month, first Thursday of each month, Vincent Kay, the proprietor, owner of Swords into Plowshares Honey who always has some great stories to tell us. So, Vincent, um, we've been talking about the heat. We've been uh, talking about, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly about that. But tell us uh, what's going on with you, and has the heat been a real big factor? Well, I'm getting hungry listening to you guys. My gosh. <laughs> you've got berries. You've got corn, cucumbers. My gosh. <laughs> Anyhow, it, uh, it's a good thing I had my lunch before <laughs> before we went on the air. But um, yeah, no, we we um, we're holding our own here. We getting back to you know a quick comment on the garlic. We we also um, grow garlic, and uh, we we probably pulled a thousand pounds of garlic last week, and um, our yield was was uh, slightly down in size, but. In general, a pretty good size, but we wanted to get it out of the ground before this heat set in, uh, because the heat is is it just bakes the ground and 
uh, everything dries up and, and it's very hard to pull the garlic out of the ground, especially if you have a little clay in the soil the way we do here uh, in Hamden. Um, so in any event, uh, we, that's what we were doing last week. Um, uh, today we began our day at 6 in the morning and, and we moved uh, honeybee colonies out of a cranberry bog that uh, rents bees from us out in Killingworth. And, um, and move them back to their, their home location in Madison. So many of the, um, the fruits and, and the um, berries and, and even the vegetables begin with pollination by our honeybees. A lot of farms around the area, uh, smaller farms, may not actually go out and rent honeybee colonies from beekeepers because maybe there's some beekeepers in their area and they know that. And they, they actually uh, receive uh, free pollination, which is a great, uh, a great thing. Um, but some of the big farms um, uh, do rent bees from us to guarantee the fact that they have pollination um, for blueberries, for raspberries, for apples, even strawberries. Um, the yield uh, almost increases by a third uh, in a field of strawberries if they're honeybees there to pollinate the blossoms. So... Um, Getting back to the heat, of course, honeybees, um, it's always a good thing to have that. Uh, we've talked about it before on, on previous shows, but when you locate a place to keep a hive of honeybees, uh, a source of clean water is so, so important. And for exactly this reason, um, uh, dry spells or hot spells like we've just had, because honeybees will pretty much gather more water than nectar. Um, they'll eat the honey or the nectar that they've stored in the hive, but they use the water that they bring back to the hive to cool the hive, to maintain a certain temperature so that they literally don't cook <laughs> inside the hive. So what they're doing is bringing in water, and then the entrances of the, the beehives are usually blanketed with a, a huge mass of bees. Uh, we call it a bee beard because it looks like a beard hanging off the hive. But what they're actually doing is fanning air in and out of the hive over the water that they put in the comb instead of nectar. And that mm. evaporation of the water cools the inside of the hive and maintains a certain temperature. It's absolutely fascinating and precise to what they need. But a clean source of water is also what we can provide. So whenever we try to locate a place to keep bees, a new location, we make sure there's a reservoir or a good, clean swamp or a pond. Um, you, what you want to avoid are puddles that may have chemicals in them or um, things of this sort, stagnant water you don't want, things like that. But um, it's very important in this kind of heat spell. Um, as far as the blossoms here in Connecticut go, um, there's still quite a few um, things going on. Uh, the month of June really has been the high mass of beekeeping. It really is when all of the honey almost literally is produced, but it does trickle into July. And I've noticed uh, in the last few days driving around large um, baseball diamonds and soccer fields covered with clover, white clover. And this is a great source for honeybees. And so I'm glad to see that. And um, also the sumac, the staghorn sumac, depending upon when it was pruned or uh, maintained or not, um, that's blooming here and there. And it has kind of a green uh, flower head, which has blossoms that the bees absolutely uh, uh, enjoy and produce quite a, quite a honey crop on. In fact, we um, harvested some honey after we moved bees out of the cranberry bog this morning. I said, let's, we haven't harvested any honey until today, but we 
we got a couple hundred pounds of honey this morning off a small bee yard here in New Haven. And uh, you could smell the sumac honey uh, as we were opening up the hive. So it's a delicious smell, and it's, it's almost like chestnuts. Uh, or, uh, the chestnut trees also are in bloom. Um, and sometimes you'll get an aroma of chestnuts in the beehives, um, mostly from the pollen, not the nectar. But nonetheless, the flavor and smell is there. And so sometimes you'll, you'll smell um, chestnuts, and then you'll smell uh, you know, different, different floral sources. But the sumac is right there with that kind of uh, pungent but very delicious uh, flavor. So I don't want to go on and on, Richard, if you have other questions. but No, but I, actually I'm curious about the sumac because, again, that's one where it's somewhat mystified. The, the, we see along the shoreline these what I think are sumac bushes and they and they have clusters of kind of fuzzy red uh, flowers in, in a well, those are actually not the flowers those were green when they were in floral form those are actual berries okay that's but, the, the fruit of the the uh, sumac go ahead I'm sorry I interrupted okay well that answers my question so so they those ones that I'm describing are what you're calling sumac yes. Okay. There's a number of different types of sumac, but there, in this region, um, very little, if any, poisonous sumac. So sumac's gotten a bad rap, so to speak. Um, most of what we know as sumac in Connecticut is harmless. It's not like poison ivy at all, and it's uh, producing a wonderful honey. And um, I've yet to find or see poisonous sumac. I'm sure it exists somewhere in Connecticut, but it's very rare, and uh, it's off the beaten path for sure. You know, this is a fact that which I'm maybe late in disseminating here, but uh, if you clip those red uh, clusters, as I said, they're somewhat they look a little creepy because they're kind of fuzzy, and I, and I do I always do have in the back of my mind poison sumac, and I'm always wondering is this the poison? You know, but no, it's not as you say, and if you clip those and take home four or five of them and then just soak them in, uh, you know, maybe filtered water or, or some good water source and uh, let them sit there for two days, let's say, you will wind up with a very tart, um, pleasant-tasting beverage, which is extremely high in, I believe, vitamin C and other antioxidants. So I'm not aware of that, but I mean, uh, it wouldn't surprise me because in general, if you see animals or birds eating berries, it's a good sign that they're not poisonous. And so the birds love those berries. And in the fall, you won't find them because the birds have already eaten them. <laughs> so they're gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. That's got, finally got that one out. So, um, what what else are you doing? Europe, you, as you say, you're now we're in July. You've mentioned, I think, that the first half of July is is the big harvest time. Well, we harvest we harvest all the way through September, so we just can't physically bring in the the, the number of boxes of honey all at once. So, you know, the truck carries maybe a thousand pounds, fifteen hundred pounds of honey at a, at a big bee yard, but. Um, you know, we, we do those trips, uh, and, and we're pretty much shot for the day. So we can probably grab that in a morning or an afternoon, depending upon which weather is better. 
But after that, um, we bring the honey boxes um, back to the shop here, and we put them in the downstairs uh, part of the building to let any uh, stray bees uh, come up out of the combs and fly out. And then we let the bees out um, through uh, a number of uh, openings and windows and, and doors. And then um, once we find that, you know, the, the boxes are, you know, relatively um, bee-free, as we call it, we uh, move them upstairs by a hoist. And that's where we actually um, extract the honey. And um, we haven't started that process yet. So we just took a small load of um, honey in the boxes, the supers, as they're called, from the bees this morning just to do like a test run on equipment and stuff like that. But when we actually take the um, boxes of honey from the bees, we lift the box up off of the hive and we put it on end. And we have this device called a bee blower, which is like a leaf blower. You've seen and heard many of those annoying things. <laughs> well, this is sort of annoying too, but it doesn't go on and on forever. <laughs> but we, we uh, have the box, uh, each box contains 10 combs, and they're usually um, really full of honey, so they weigh a lot. So each box maybe is 40 or 50 pounds. And we tip this up on end, and it's packed with bees as well. So we take the, um, the bee blower, which has a hose on it, and a high um, jet of air comes out of that hose, and we actually blow the bees out of the box, and it doesn't hurt the bees at all. They fly back to their colony, and which is, you know, maybe 10 feet away. And then we put the box without the bees, um, just the honeycomb, onto the truck, and we cover it with a tarp. And then we proceed through the bee yard going from hive to hive and do this. By the, usually by the end of the, the line of hives that we may have in a particular field, well, the bees have caught on to this game, and they say, oh, wait a second here. That is our honey that you're trying to take. <laughs> and they become a lot more aggressive, and they try to rob it back. So sometimes we're putting the boxes on. We fling open the tarp, and we put the box on quickly, which, of course, weighs a lot. So everything's like slow motion. And we're struggling to, to get this stuff on the truck to cover it back over with the tarp. But the bees are just swarming the truck to the point where it's just um, – kind of fruitless to even try to put the tarp on so then we usually stop and we leave and um it's interesting to i was saying to my helper john the other day it's like um when we come back if we leave the bee yard with that load of honey and then we come back a different day to finish up or take more honey the bees actually i think start to recognize or smell either the honey on the truck or <laughs> actually recognizes the truck <laughs> As they start looking for honey before we even start. And so, then you know you're in big trouble. Because so it's just like, oh boy, here it comes. And they're not really stinging. They're not looking to sting, but they're looking to get back into their boxes to take the honey home. Hmm. And so they want to, they say, oh no, no, this is ours, not yours. And it's kind of like a, a, com a show of comedy because, you know, we, we're trying to take it, they're trying to take it. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's, it's quite a sound actually with all those bees. And when I say, um, they're trying to swarm the truck. They really are. I mean, we're talking about probably tens of thousands of bees at that point. <laughs> um, not only does you have to understand that not only does the bee blower blow the bees out of the honey box that we want to put on the truck, it's also blowing the smell of honey around the bee yard. So it really whips up these bees into kind of like holy crow. Something is really good mm. here, <laughs> and uh, we want it. And um, anyhow, it, it's fascinating every year, and it's usually hot. Um, 
work, extremely hot. I mean, you're soaking wet. The bee suits last maybe 15 minutes before they're just a total mess. And the gloves, everything is soaking wet by the time we come home and we have to dry things out and wash things up on daily because it's just, you know, gets a little funky in the truck. And uh, no dogs allowed on those trips, that's for <laughs> sure. There's just way too many bees. And uh, But anyhow, this goes on through the summer. We go from bee yard to bee yard. And uh, we've just made a start. So um, the honey looks and smells delicious. It smells like um, chestnut. It smells like sumac. Yet it's light in color right now. So um, early in the season, the honey is usually a lighter color. Uh, as we go forward, it'll darken depending upon floral sources, the goldenrod in the fall, the knotweed in the fall. Those are all darker honeys, um, richer flavors, um, not better or worse, which is different. And uh, so right now we're, we're, let, we're starting with the, the earlier blooms that the bees were gathering from earlier in the season. So the honey is fairly light in color. Um, and we hope we have a, a good supply of linden honey because linden honey is um, kind of sought after and prized here in the area. And it's a, it's a delicious honey. And we have a lot of linden trees in New Haven. And the weather has cooperated, so we're hoping for quite a crop. So, but we'll we'll keep you posted as, as the season goes forward. Uh, so, Vincent, I I have a question for you. Yeah, um, how do you? Because a lot of times you like as an example, you go to the grocery store, they have clover honey. How, yep. how do you? Uh, how would you have a honey exclusively uh, obtained from one type of plant? Well, it never is 100% guaranteed one, you know, uh, without any any other honeys in it. But if you were in the middle of the Midwest and for miles and miles around, there's nothing but clover fields, I'd say you got a pretty good chance of having clover honey. Um, you can tell from the smell and from the color of the honey that that's what it is. Um, if you go up into Maine where there's just, you know, fields and forests of blueberry bushes and where they do the logging, they often clear-cut these areas, which is a whole other story um, to be dealt with. Um, but what grows back are blueberry bushes, and they grow back densely. And, uh, and so you can kind of see the bloom, and you see the honeybees on it. And some beekeepers move their hives in just so that the bees can have that um, particular nectar. And you can just go out into the field and look and see that the bees are on that flower. Okay. Say, Holy moly, this is great. And... And you can actually smell it in the hive. And so you say, okay, well, it's not 100%. Nothing's ever 100% in life. Um, but you can say, that mm, this is blueberry honey or this is clover honey or this is um, because of the reddish wine-like color of the honey. This is Japanese knotweed honey in the fall. And um, you're pretty much guaranteed that that's what it is. Um, but, again, it's never 100%. Vincent, okay. uh, can you, you got us up to loading the boxes on the truck. And then you, you know, you got took them back to the, uh, to the, uh, to your home base there on. Uh, I always forget the name of your street. Uh, I used to live yeah. right right next door to you there, um, in East Rock. So you you hoist them up to the second floor, and then we usually uh, have to do that at night because again I have a, a number of hives in my yard here, and they can smell. Again, it doesn't take them long. I mean, sometimes literally seconds. <laughs> And they know what's going on. They say, okay, he's moving the honey upstairs into the shop. And they start swarming the boxes. <laughs> so a lot of times we have to do it at night when they're, and they're not flying. And so um, that's when it's done, when we actually transfer 
um, the honey up into the shop. But go ahead, you continue your your, your line yeah. of questioning. But I just wanted to interject that. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. So. Um so once you're doing that, you're extracting the honey from the hives. How do you separate the honey from the, I guess, the little cones or beeswax containers in which they sit? Right, right. Well, the bees do store the honey in, in combs. The nectar is, is put into the combs, and they fan their wings over it. They evaporate the moisture. And when they know that it's ready or ripe, they seal it over with a layer of beeswax. Right. So these combs that we load into the shop, the upstairs part of the shop where we extract the honey, are combs of honey that are sealed over by the bees in beeswax. So what we do is we have a sharp, flat knife with a copper coil um, brazed or soldered onto the uh, up the the, um, the, sur- the uphill surface of the knife. The, the bottom of the knife is 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 heated by steam. So we have a steam generator that, that has a hose going from the generator to through a hose to the copper coil on the, the solder to the knife blade. This heats up the knife blade just enough so that it can cut through the wax, expose the honey, so that we can spin it in the large centrifuge that we have without burning or changing the honey in any way. So it, it, you have to be very careful when you start using heat because honey, like, um, is is really just it's a it's a natural sugar, but it will burn just the way sugar on a stovetop will burn, and it happens quickly, and it's it's a mess when it does. So you can't have any kind of heat applied to honey. So whatever you do has to be in a water bath, and needs to um, be done very carefully. Vincent, so, from that point on, how soon will that honey that you just brought up there and you know, extracted. How soon will that be on the shelves in the store? And we and we are down to the last minute of our of the show, so please. Yeah, it, it's ready to go. I mean, it goes into a it gets put through a cheesecloth filter, and put into large stainless steel settling tanks that'll hold a thousand pounds each, and then from there it goes into bottling tanks as we need it. But within within days, I mean, we're 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 working on the last end of last year's crop, but. This year, 2021's crop will probably be on the shelf within the next month or so. So, yes. And it will change in color. You'll have different colors throughout the summer of different honeys that we produce from certain areas. And then as we mix it into the big tanks, it will all become kind of the same color. But usually it's different from year to year anyhow. Vincent, it's been great, as usual, to to go on the on the adventure with you. It's always somehow new. It's always sometimes, uh, you know, exciting and, and uh, daunting, but we appreciated it. I want to thank Guy Beardsley. I want to thank Chris Ferriero. My, my name is Richard Hill. Organic Farm Stand will be back in two weeks. Stay tuned to WPKN. Peter Beauchamp's All Mixed Up is next. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Guy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Vincent. This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. 
Florida just took a huge step backward in the clean energy revolution. Governor Ron DeSantis signed a piece of legislation into law earlier this week that requires Florida's cities and towns to keep using fossil fuels and could strangle their ability to set clean energy goals and mandates. The bill is very similar to a slew of other bills that have entered state legislatures over the past year. These pieces of legislation, which have been dubbed Ban the Ban Bills, are sponsored by oil and gas interests. They're part of a flurry of public lobbying and private panic from the industry in response to the growing number of cities moving to ban natural gas hookups in new construction. The bill is following the national trend we're seeing pushed by the natural gas industry in at least eight states. According to The Guardian, after a century of wielding extraordinary economic and political power, America's petroleum giants face a reckoning for driving the greatest existential threat of our lifetimes. An unprecedented wave of lawsuits filed by cities and states across the U.S. aimed to hold the oil and gas industry to account for the environmental devastation caused by fossil fuels and covering up what they knew along the way. Coastal cities struggling to keep rising sea levels at bay, Midwestern states watching mega rains destroy crops and homes and fishing communities losing catches to warming waters are now demanding that the oil conglomerates pay damages and take urgent action to reduce further harm from burning fossil fuels. But even more strikingly, the nearly two dozen lawsuits are underpinned by accusations that the industry severely aggravated the environmental crisis with a decades-long campaign of lies and deceit to suppress warnings from their own scientists about the impact of fossil fuels on the climate and duped the American public. A punishing drought in the U.S. West is drying up waterways, sparking wildfires, and leaving farmers scrambling for water. And now, a plague of voracious grasshoppers. Federal agriculture officials are launching what could become their largest grasshopper-killing campaign since the 1980s amid an outbreak of the drought-loving insects that cattle ranchers fear will strip public and private rangelands. Scientists said grasshoppers thrive in warm, dry weather, and such outbreaks could become more common as climate change shifts rainfall patterns. To blunt the grasshopper's economic damage, the U.S. Department of Agriculture this week began aerial spraying of the pesticide Deflubenzeron to kill grasshopper nymphs before they develop into adults. Mass environmental destruction, known as ecocide, could become an international crime similar to genocide and war crimes under a proposed new legal definition. The definition's unveiling last week by a panel of 12 lawyers from around the world marks a big first step in the global campaign's efforts to prevent future environmental disasters like the deforestation of the Amazon or actions that contribute to climate change. There are currently four core international crimes, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. The independent expert panel for the legal definition of ecocide spent six months preparing the 165-word definition. The draft defines ecocide as unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. 
And finally, Scotland is building a massive plant capable of removing 1 million tons of CO2 from the air every year. The plant Scotland is proposing will remove the same amount of CO2 as around 40 million trees. It would become operational by 2026, and the captured greenhouse gases would be stored permanently under the seabed off the Scottish coast. Scientists believe if we want to avoid the brunt of climate change, we'd best keep temperature rise below 1.5 degrees. But time is all but running out, as global temperatures have already increased 1.2 degrees above their historic levels. So, in addition to ways of reducing emissions, researchers are looking for other ways to remove large amounts of carbon emissions from the atmosphere. Carbon capture and storage is one such way. It is believed that the technology won't save us from climate change, but it could play a role. This was the Gaiagram. Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. You're listening to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, independent community radio, broadcasting from the campus of the University of Bridgeport. Also streaming at WPKN.org.